Across the Margin, the podcast, where we take you behind the scenes of the online magazine and deeper into the stories. I'm your host, Michael Shields, and I have an excellent episode for you today, one that uh, presents a deep dive into an outstanding book entitled Three Seconds in Munich, the controversial 1972 Olympic basketball final. And I'm thrilled to share an interview with David Sweet in this episode, the author of Three Seconds in Munich. But first... The world has changed since our last episode, and I know a lot of you out there are confused and scared as I am, um, as positive as a person, as I believe myself to be. It's admittedly hard to stay optimistic and inspired at times in uh, New York, where uh, across the margin is situated, like many places in the country and the world, uh, COVID is all around and hitting way too close to home. Not going to sugarcoat it. It's uh, truly devastating on many levels, and we are all in it deep right now. But we must press on and be there for each other more now than ever from afar, of course. And we must do something of utmost importance, and that is endure. We must endure because although it is dark right now in many aspects of the word, there is a light somewhere out there that will eventually become brighter and brighter until we are all with each other's help and love on the other side of this. So stay low, stay home, help friends, family, and strangers when you can, and endure. And thank you um, from everyone here uh, at Across the Margin, the whole team, from the bottom of our hearts to everyone on the front lines against this madness. uh, We truly owe you everything. Before we move forth into this fascinating episode, just a reminder that Across the Margin, the podcast, is part of the Osiris Media Group, Head over to OsirisPod.com to check out the eclectic offerings of podcasts they have and other content. We're in the midst of putting out quarantine content of all kinds at Osiris. Learn more about that at OsirisPod.com. Across the margin, we'll be going live on Osiris' YouTube every Wednesday moving forward from 6 to 6.30 p.m. That's 6 to 6.30 p.m. every Wednesday, and you should join us. We'll be talking books, film, music, and offering all kinds of quarantine recommends to Help us stay um, entertained and informed during this. So uh, to find out um, more about that, get the link to uh, their uh, each each week's episode uh, live stream. Um, go to uh, our handle. Go to Across the Margin's Twitter handle, at Across the Margin. We'll have all the information there. We'll have it up at the website and all that as well. So now for the fun. As I mentioned earlier, today on the program is author David Sweet, who penned Three Seconds in Munich, about the controversial finish in the 1972 gold medal basketball contest between the United States and the Soviet Union. While the book does center on what is undoubtedly one of the most perplexing and contentious finishes in all of sports, Three Seconds in Munich tells a layered story that exists both inside and outside the gymnasium. To most, the 1972 Olympics are remembered primarily for a profoundly grave matter when 11 Israeli team members were killed by Palestinian terrorists stunning the world and briefly stopping the games. 
This event, recounted in detail in David's book, is crucial to understanding the 1972 Olympics in Katsuma and also what the Olympic athletes were experiencing at the time. While this is indeed a basketball story, one of the most compelling I've come upon, it is one steeped in Cold War politics, contentious global relationships, multifarious scandals, and above all, there's a human element that persists throughout Three Seconds of Munich where a grouping of inspiring young athletes stands ardently for what they believe in. All of this, David and I speak on this interview a whole lot we get into. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. David is an outstanding writer and researcher. His last book, entitled Lamar Hunt, The Gentle Giant Who Revolutionized Professional Sports, is also a must-read. You will see that he has quite an encyclopedic knowledge of history and sports, and I know that you will enjoy this interview with David Sweet. So, uh, David, sweet, thank you so much for coming on the program. Um, I'm thrilled to learn more about uh, Three Seconds in Munich. Uh, congratulations. What a book. I love it. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, I think the people who like it, just they do love it. I mean, there are some people who are very passionate about it who I've heard from. Yeah, oh, that's good. I'm glad the reception's going well. It's, it's very uh, uh, well-deserved. Um, so, you learned real fast in the introduction that you were amongst the 8,500 fans in Lake Placid to behold the U.S. hockey team in 1980 knock out the USSR juggernaut 4-3 in a jaw-dropping upset. Um, with that in mind, that's remarkable, by the way, but with that in mind, it's fascinating to consider that you uh, chose here to tell a mind-blowing story about the 72 Olympics Um you know, kind of rather than maybe, you know, digging more into the 1980 games. So that compels me to ask, uh, what, um, you know, what drove you to tell this story here? Well, that's a great point. Um, and to the 1980, uh, reference you made, it really is more interesting to me to talk about, uh, horrible loss like this one was, mm. uh, the 1980 game was fantastic. And, it was a miracle on ice and America celebrated and all that. But this, uh, game had a lot more drama to it in my mind. And let me explain why. Uh, first of all, you had the backdrop of terrorism, mm. uh, which most people remember the 72 Munich games for, uh, you know, this horrific event, um, 11 Israeli athletes and coaches died. So you have that as uh, an important part to the story. And as well, you have what I would call the most controversial loss in sports history, mm. which we can talk about more in detail. Sure. Um, and not only that, you also have, for the first time ever, and the first time, you know, the only time it's ever happened, even almost 50 years later, you had Olympic athletes, an entire team, reject their medals, yep. and they have until this day. Uh, so you have a lot of different aspects to it which are, are extremely dramatic and, to me, very compelling. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It, it works on a lot of levels. And, um, yeah, I mean, that they, we, I, we have to start right there. I mean, this was, um, you know, when people think of the Olympics, the, this Olympics, 1972 Olympics, it, how do you not think of uh, the hijacking and uh, murder of all the, uh, the 11, I believe it was 11 Israeli team members? Um, right. So it was, it was really interesting how you were able to set that up 
uh, with keeping in mind that this was the first Olympics in Germany since, um, you know, what we could look at as Hitler's Olympics. So the security, um, and this was a really fascinating point, was a lot, uh, was very lax in this situation because of, um, you know, they were trying to be the anti-Hitler uh, Olympics. Can you speak on some of that? And also just, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah go, go right on that one. I, that, that was fascinating to me. Yeah, no, you make an excellent point. So the previous Olympics in Germany had been 1936 in Berlin, mm-hmm. uh, where Adolf Hitler reigned over it. Um, and that was a very controversial Olympics because of Hitler and, and what Nazi Germany was and what it became. So, so then by 1972, 36 years later, uh, Germany sort of had a second chance at this mm-hmm. and they wanted to, they, they, sorry, they wanted the, Olympics to be as, as polar opposite from 36 as it could be. And what that meant was lax security. Uh, there were complaints beforehand about how lax it was. And in fact, the Israeli athletes um, were not happy to be housed on the first floor mm-hmm. of a building where there was hardly any security. And the security guards that were there wore sort of colorful uniforms. It was all supposed to be in the spirit of of peace and Harmony, joy and everything. Yeah. And then there all that lay between uh, the Olympic village and the outside world was a six and a half foot chain link fence that mm-hmm. anyone could climb over. In fact, athletes did if they were out past curfew and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, I would say the problem started with uh, an incredibly uh, incredible lack of security which obviously changed greatly after that. I think in the book I point out at the 2004 games in Greece, I mean, the amount of money spent on security was mind-boggling mm. compared to 1972. I think you mentioned it was more than um, the Olympics in total um, in Munich. Yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah. Sounds right, yeah. yeah. Those numbers, it was, the numbers were very daunting. Yeah, I kept thinking, because, I mean, the games, it, it was decided that the games would go on. I just kept thinking how mentally difficult that would be on the players. I mean, they could see, as pointed out in your book, they could see the hijackers from their cafeteria while they're eating. I mean, Doug Collins described it as it was like being in a war movie. That had to weigh so heavy on the mind. It did. And I, a lot of them at the time wished the games had been canceled. Yeah. They just wanted to get out of there. But in retrospect, they said uh, they're glad the games went on uh, because the Olympics didn't um, – Cave into the terrorists, yep. basically, which makes sense. Um, oh yeah, it did make sense to go on as as heavy hearted as everybody was. Um, you know, they they had to make a decision very quickly, and uh, they, they did. And everything was postponed today, but mm-hmm. everything got played. Of course, the Israeli team left, so they didn't compete in anything after that. But. Uh, most of the other uh, players were involved in uh, competition. Yeah, yeah. It's it, looking back, it's it, it's good. It is you know pretty good to see that it did continue, and you do understand why that decision was made. So the controversial game that uh, takes place is obviously the United States versus USSR, a uh, storied and lengthy rivalry to say the least. Um, what I found so fascinating is how sports, as exemplified in this game, is viewed as. Uh, another arm of politics. Um, essentially, we have a case where the Cold War um, was taking place on the court, uh, especially by Russians. Is is this a, a correct way to view it? Yeah, uh, definitely. It was it, it was um, the Cold War on the court is a great way of putting mm-hmm. it. 
Uh, for those who don't know, I mean, the U.S. and the Soviets had been strong rivals since the 50s or pretty much after the end of World War II. And the Cold War referred to the fact that they were bitter rivals in in the world, though they there was never an actual hot war that resulted from it. Yeah. They didn't attack each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of it, it yeah, it came out. In, and then, and the, the Soviets, uh, to help promote their uh, thinking and, and way of ideology, believed in strong sports teams. And they had one of the best basketball teams around from the 50s and 60s and into mm-hmm. the 70s. Mm-hmm. But the U.S. kept beating them. Uh, except for the 72 game. Um, but I'd like to point out too, um, the Soviets were basically a professional team, even though the Olympic rules said everyone had to be amateurs. So that, what that meant was the U S players were college players. Mm-hmm. They, they weren't from the NBA, but the Soviet players had played together in other Olympics as well. Uh, so in that sense, they had the upper hand. Yeah. You know what? You just walked me into what was going to be my next question. As we move towards the, the game more, um, I was, I wanted to, to, uh, kind of touch on, um, you know, even though we consider us's storied success in, uh, in the Olympics, in terms of basketball, the team faced many uphill challenges in these Olympics, specifically against Russia. And you spoke on that one, how they were, um, you know, they were younger, they were inexperienced. I mean, the U.S. team, um, they, uh, you know, they were kind of put together on the fly, as, as you discussed, while these other teams are playing. But there was also other challenges in, in regards to rules. I mean, they, they faced uh, uh, an uphill battle on many fronts in this, um, in this Olympics and in this game. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and as the, as the 60s went on, people were getting more and more worried. You know, how can the U.S. keep competing on the international stage? with the way their team was selected, basically they'd be selected, let's say the May before the Olympic games, which Mm -hmm. doesn't give you much time to train, to get to know each other, to set up a game plan. Whereas, uh, the Soviets, you know, they all knew each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, again, they had played in previous Olympics together. Uh, so yeah, it was definitely an uphill climb. Although the U S had invented basketball and was considered always, you know, superior in basketball. As the years went on, it got tougher and tougher to to win the Olympic gold. Yeah, absolutely. There's also um, some of the rules that were, uh, um, you know, that they use in FIBA at the time. Specifically, things have kind of uh, come around a little bit where they're using more rules that that we're used to over here in America. But uh, FIBA FIBA did not implement a bonus free throw. That's the and one that we know of here, which. Uh, it actually right. promotes uh, following at will and rougher play and you know bruising in general. And there was a uh, one other you mentioned that um, they really didn't call goaltending often. And I guess you know uh, right. European or, or you know um, uh, players over there they they would take advantage of it uh, a little bit. And, and U.S. basketball players instinctually would you know stay away from trying to goaltend the ball. So there was things like that at play as well. So you know. Those are great points. Uh, every four years, the U.S. had to adapt to an international set of rules, which had enough differences that uh, it would sort of hamper their game. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. It's it's relearning a, a game um, that you've known so well, and your instincts tell you different things. But uh, hey, quick question, kind of an aside: um, Is there good footage of this game? Um, you were able to give such an amazing play-by-play account of. Uh, 
the game and and just is, is there something I want to see the final play or the those final three seconds very very badly is there stuff out there? Yeah, I was fortunate on YouTube. I, I could never find a full um, the full game basically, mm-hmm. but I find uh, large parts of it on YouTube. So that's why I was able to detail it so well. I'd awesome. watch the videos again and again to make sure I got it right, especially in the final seconds. Um, but yeah, there was enough out there without getting the whole tape of the game to, uh, to put it all together. That's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be doing a deep dive YouTube dive soon. I need to see some of this, um, to get, uh, kind of right to the crux of, of what we're talking about here in the, in the basketball controversy, there are, um, of course, many outlying concerns and suspect happenings um, that occurred. But basically, one man took it upon himself to put more time on the clock when the game had ended. Uh, what can you tell us about this man and what he did that day? Uh, that's a great question, and I'll start way back when. Uh, R. William Jones was the head of international basketball from 1932 on, and he basically ran the Olympic basketball tournament from 1936 on. And the U.S. on occasion had issues with him, uh, mainly back in 1952. Fog Allen, the famous Kansas mm-hmm. coach, mm-hmm. Um, thought that Jones favored the Soviets. He, he wrote a letter um, to the um, U.S. Olympic Committee, the head of it, to that effect, that you know he felt Jones was uh, should be a disinterested observer, a neutral observer, but he obviously uh, was fond of the Soviets. Mm. And there were stories over the years the Soviets would give him a lot of gifts, but, I mean, I couldn't prove that other countries weren't giving Jones the same gifts. So anyway, we get to 1972, and Jones, first of all, set up something that's in the book where he said teams should come to Munich and test the new arena, the equipment in the arena, this and that. And this was done, I believe, before the American team was even chosen. So basically it gave Europe a chance to practice more and get together more. Uh, The U.S. Olympic Committee didn't like it, but Jones went on with it anyway. Mm -hmm. So we get to this game, um, uh, and uh, I should reiterate, or I haven't said it yet, but I should point out that uh, the U.S. had won every Olympic gold medal until this point, seven in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this game, the Soviets were ahead the entire game until Doug Collins of the U.S., after being knocked into the basketball stanchion, hit two free throws in a daze, and the U.S. was ahead with three seconds left by one point, 50 to 49. And then the Soviets inbounded the ball and weren't in, even in the act of shooting, uh, but the official on the court called timeout because there was a big ruckus on the off the Soviet bench. The assistant coach had come over claiming he had called a timeout, but they didn't give him a timeout. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically there should have been one second left mm-hmm. when the official called this timeout because of the chaos. But our William Jones came down from the stands and he said, no, there are three seconds left. And then, uh, so they went back with three seconds. The Soviets inbounded the ball, missed the shot, and the U.S. went nuts. They had won their eighth Olympic gold medal in a row. Uh, they won the game. But then our William Jones came down again and said, nope, three seconds should be put back on the clock because the clock was not set to three seconds before that play began. 
So it's sort of like if uh, Adam Silver came out of the stands or in a a Lakers uh, Celtics championship game seven Mm -hmm. and trying to put time on the clock. I mean, he probably wouldn't get out of there alive, Um, (laughs) but this is what Jones did. And finally on the final, on the final play, the Soviets scored their third chance with three seconds to go and they won the game. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. No, someone who it's, it's, you point out in, in, you know, multiple times I noticed in the book that he, you know, he was, he was involved in rule making so much and he has put rules in place that, that, that oppose entirely what he did that day. That is something that is, it was not okay for him to do that in any way. And it's just unbelievably messed up. That's a great point. Uh, Yeah. He basically created the fight FIBA rule book with some help. Um, and one of the rules is the referee referees control the game. I mean, no one can change a referee's decision, but Jones ran international basketball and everyone at the scores table and the referees, they owed their jobs to him. Yep. So yep. they were scared, to, scared to fight him on this. So, uh, they went along with it. So, uh, after the game, they all complained except for one referee. Yeah, I mean, they, they were not going to listen to the man who was known as Mr. Wor- World Basketball uh, at all. So you mentioned a right. few, um, uh, you know, gifts, and you, do, you don't know if, you know, other people were getting gifts from other countries or what not there. But um, why do you think it was that uh, he, he, he made that decision to walk down and, you know, instill himself in the game and add those um, three seconds to the clock? But that's a great point. I mean, it's obviously unprecedented, and I don't think we've ever seen it again on, on at least on a world championship level. Nope. But I believe he did it. Um, he, again, he's the head of international basketball, and international basketball can't be considered valid if just one team keeps winning mm-hmm. the major championship, the Olympics. Yep. Uh, and by having the Soviets win all of a sudden interest in internet and international basketball can expand greatly. I mean, any country can now think they could win it. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I go back to the point, you know, he favored the Soviets to begin with and his comments after the game. I mean, he, he never apologized or anything. He said, you know, the U S needs to learn how to lose sour grapes. uh, Yeah. (laughs) And I'll also point out, um, you, you pointed out the rules thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was appeal by the U.S. after the game, yep. and Jones put on his friend Frank Hep onto the appeal committee. Hep was from Yugoslavia, but the rules said um, anyone on the appeal committee had to be part of a team that was in the Olympic tournament. Uh, Yugoslavia basketball was not in the Olympic tournament, mm-hmm. so his appearance on the appeal committee was illegal by FIBA rules. Um, and basically the U S lost the appeal three to two and HEP was the deciding vote. Yeah. It was interesting that, um, uh, we, we discussed it a little bit earlier about how the cold war, uh, played out in sports, but, uh, this vote was along, uh, those kind of allegiance lines, um, you know, Puerto Rico and Italy, uh, voting with the America, and then it was Russia, Yugoslavia, and I can't remember the other one, but it was all based along those allegiances as well. You're exactly right. Um, and there was a press conference during uh, the discussion about the vote, and uh, 
the reporters, many from the U.S., of course, were mm-hmm. pretty outraged because it was such an obvious, almost a scam. Uh, the press conference sort of collapsed in chaos. Uh, but, you know, just added to the, the whole narrative of, uh, you know, corruption and, uh, and a problematic ending in the Olympics. Absolutely. So I have a, a hypothetical question. I'm just curious your thoughts on this because I couldn't help but think this. Um, and with the aid of hindsight, of course, when you're in that moment, when when that you know controversy erupts at the end of the game, who knows what you do in the situation? But do you think that the players should have, and the coach and the whole U.S. team should have left the court after that time had expired and the game was over and they won? Um, what maybe I can't help but thinking that maybe that would be the best form of protest, seeing as you know they went on the court afterwards and played those faux. Uh, three, um, three seconds again, I almost felt that that gave, um, you know, it substantiated that decision in some way. I mean, it, do you think they could have, um, it would have been a good move to just walk off the court. We won, you know, deal with it. Uh, that's a great question. And the coach Hank Iba was asked to do that. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm not, I'm not going to force have to lose this game by forfeit sitting on my ass <laughs> in the locker room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah, it just, it just uh, felt, I mean, I think like the a... U.S. sort of knew things were uh, against them, yeah. and had they done that, they probably felt like they would have been declared the losers, even though they were ahead in the game. Yep. And it's so like... that that option was discussed and mm-hmm. dismissed. And I, yeah, I think you know they, they, you know, realistically, they should have won that game. And I'll point out because we haven't talked about yet the the final three seconds where the Soviets yeah, scored. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so one thing we haven't touched on is, uh, one of the referees was from Bulgaria, which was basically a Soviet satellite mm-hmm. state. And in the book, I point out, um, FIBA rules say that, uh, back then said in the last three minutes, any foul of, of either half, any foul people could go to the free throw line. And I looked at those YouTube videos very closely and at least, two of the fouls called by uh, the referee from Bulgaria were against the U S were not even, I don't think they touched the Soviet player. Yeah. Uh, not only that, there was a foul against the U S against a sort of second tier Soviet player. And instead uh, the referee from Bulgaria sent Sergei Belov, who was the best player on the Soviet team. He had 20 of their 51 points. Mm-hmm. He sent him to the foul line to shoot the free throws and the Americans were like, why is this guy here? But they couldn't do anything about it. So anyway, to, to the final three seconds, Tom McMillan had guarded the Soviet inbounder on the previous play. And in this play, the final one of the game, referee uh, from Bulgaria said, no, you can't guard him. And McMillan's like, what are you talking about? But the referee made a motion, no, don't guard him. And so McMillan had to go back to the free throw line which gave Ivan Nadeshko, the Soviet player, a free look down the court, sort of like, uh, you know, the 1992, I believe it was. It happened, uh, the Grant Hill pass to Christian Leitner. Uh, or you could even you know, go the, uh, the 1990 UConn versus Duke when Scott Burrell threw the ball all the way down the court to Tate George. 
Um, and okay, uh, yeah, so yeah, it's at the full length court. And if someone is in your face, it is, um, it's, it's, it's very trying to figure out exactly where to throw. It's, it's, it's frantic in that situation. And they actually, that's a great point. They moved him back. Yeah. That's a huge, huge advantage. Yeah, so because and then on the previous play, McMillan had guarded him. Uh, Adesco could only pass it in the backcourt, so they took like an eighty-foot shot. Yep. But with McMillan not guarding him, throwing it all the way down the court to Alexander Beloff, uh, and then the two U.S. players who were trying to guard him, one fell down, the other ran by him, and Beloff had the easiest shot of his life. No one was guarding him; he was right by the basket, and he put it in. So, so that referee, uh, along with Jones, uh, had a major impact on the U.S. losing that game as well. I, I would say he was, you know, as corrupt as, as Jones. And in fact, after the game, he told uh, the U, a U.S. referee who he was uh, rooming with, mm-hmm. Jim Bain, that if uh, the Soviets hadn't won, he feared for his family. Yeah, so that's, that's so telling, and it just shows the corruption yep. was. Uh, uh, consummate. I mean, it wasn't just one man making the decision, although that was the probably the biggest, right. uh, you know, factor here. But I mean, the, there was referees involved. It was the, the deck was right. entirely stacked. It, it's it's wild. The whole story is really really wild when you look at it from all those angles. Um, so right, this became the first time ever, as you alluded to earlier, an Olympic team rejected their medals, and this is this is a huge deal that um. It could have had consequences on U.S. basketball as a whole and, of course, to them personally. And I was wondering if you could speak a little to those consequences. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the, the team went into the locker room absolutely stunned. Uh, they couldn't believe what had happened. And none of them I spoke with remembered the exact words used so much. Or, or they said there definitely was not a vote on it. It was just sort of by acclamation is like, we're definitely not accepting these medals. Um, and Tom McMillan seemed to be the only one who held out a little bit on it, but then he was persuaded and no, we're not accepting these. Um, and yeah, it was pointed out to many of them that, look, you could affect us basketball's, uh, place in the Olympics. They may not let us play in 76. If, if you guys do this, um, I mean, this was unprecedented, uh, an unprecedented move not to accept yeah. an Olympic medal. I mean, that's, you know, it's basically calling the Olympics corrupt. Yep. And, uh, but they, they stood with it. And over the years, they've had many, uh, offers from the U.S. Olympic Committee and, and others, you know, please accept these medals. Um, you know, you've won the silver medal, this and that. But all of them I spoke with, I mean, they'll not only will they not ever accept the medal, it's almost 50 years later now, one of them is dead. Uh, and But two of them have in their wills uh, that's that... That's amazing. Yeah, that their descendants cannot accept the silver medal as well. That's how strongly they feel about it. Um, but yeah, at the time, it was a little dangerous. Plus, um, the 68 Olympics were controversial because of the the two uh, athletes who stood with the black power salute on the Olympic platform. And, you know, there was a a lot of anger at them for doing that. And, you know, the U S players didn't know would people just hate them because of the stand they're Mm -hmm. taking. And it didn't seem to turn out that way. It seemed, you know, they were, I would say they're pretty supported in it. Um, And again, this is back before Twitter, ESPN, all the talk, all sorts. Yeah. 
Oh uh, yeah, all the talking heads. So there wasn't a lot of debate about it after the games. Plus, I think everyone was still so shocked about the terrorism. Yep. So it didn't really get the publicity it, it probably would have in normal times. Yeah, it's clear that they um, at that point uh, they didn't know any other form of protest. That this is the this is the way right. they stand against it. And in, in your book, uh, you know, a big takeaway I felt um, it it really speaks to principality in this way and sticking to what you believe and. And really sticking to believe what was right, and 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 they surely did, and and for years to come, and it was quite a burden on them, um, and it just it, it's obviously taxing mentally to them. Uh, would you would you feel in that 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 this uh, still weighs on them so heavily when you spoke to them and researched them? This is this is something they they, they walked away that day and they they got out of, got out of dodge pretty quick, but this has lived with them for many, right. many years. Yeah, they. Uh it still impacts them to this day, which is another important point to writing the book. This, you know, it's affected their entire lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talked with Jerry Colangelo, uh, who, you know, the Phoenix Suns owner, who also was head of USA basketball. A long time, yeah. And, and, and he told me how he had Doug Collins speak to one of the teams. I, I can't remember if it was 2004 team, 2008, but one of the U.S. Olympic teams. And he said, you know, you can, he could see it in Doug Collins' eyes, just how the whole 72 Olympic gold medal game had affected his life and how he, he still carried it with him. And he said, think about the other players as well and the coaches. I mean, I would, I'd love to point this out too, because this is something, uh, you know, few people under a certain age would know. Basically, as I mentioned, the U.S. players were amateurs back then. Mm -hmm. So this was their one shot at Olympic gold. In 76, they'd all be pros and they couldn't play in the Olympics. So it's totally different from today when uh, a guy like Carmelo Anthony can win two or three gold medals and And the NBA players. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the NBA players can go back time and again mm-hmm. but for these guys this was it yep. um, and I'd like to also say Kenny Davis he was the team captain and I went to his house in Kentucky and he's a very patriotic guy on the side of his house he has an American flag a wooden American flag with the Pledge of Allegiance on it mm-hmm. and he, he, he said <clears throat> excuse me he said that there's not any time a national anthem is played when he doesn't, it doesn't make him think of what they lost because, as you know, the national anthem is played at the medal ceremony when for the gold medal team. But the U.S. players didn't even attend the medal ceremony um, because they weren't accepting a medal. But he he just couldn't get over the fact, uh, you know, if he's just in a high school gym and hears the national anthem, he can't, he can't not ever forget what could have been with that, that, you know, song washing right. him as he celebrated. Yeah. The toll um, is profound and it really, you really brought that home. And one thing I couldn't stop thinking about is, um, you know, of course, uh, you know, losing the game, not being able to celebrate and everything, but this was like, kind of um, swallowing a pill about reality in a major way. I mean, they seem to lose faith in institutions in general. I mean, specifically the Olympics institution, but um, it seemed to me that that these kids woke up to the ills uh, of the world at these games, that that things aren't fair and it's messed up. I mean, Bobby Jones was quoted as just saying, my faith in man was, 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 was ruined. I mean, this, this was a wake up call. Yeah, because you think about it, you know, they head over to Munich. They're all excited to 
to be in the Olympics. And then within a span of about five days, not only is there this terrorism that wipes out their faith in man, Mm -hmm. then, you know, in a a sports game, which is supposed to be, uh, you know, what's the word? It's just supposed to be fair, I guess is the best word. It was completely unfair. Mm -hmm. Uh, So within that short period, all of a sudden, you know, they're just absolutely stunned. And uh, Tom Burleson, I'd like to point this out because it's, as you read in the first chapter, he's a real linchpin to this whole book because he was uh, close, more closely involved with the terrorism than any of the U.S. players because uh, when he tried to sneak back into the Olympic Village, uh, the hostages were coming out and a West German soldier put a gun to his head. Mm -hmm. Burleson said, you know, saying, you know, the hostages are coming out right now. You're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And Burleson, as they walked behind him, he could hear the shuffling of their feet and the crying and and all sorts of stuff. And when they had their 40th reunion um, in 2012, Mm -hmm. all the players got back together for the first time. Uh, He just started crying his eyes out when he was telling this story. Um, And, you know, the... Again, I, I just emphasize the impact on all these players I, from the terrorism to the those cold is, metal game. Those Israelis it's, were marching past him to their death. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, and he knows that now. And it just it all came into focus and hearing those tears and just understanding right. the fear and knowing what happened. It's 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 incredible. It's right. It's, it's just it's it's hard. It's hard to think about what how this whole thing must weigh on them. It's wild. Um, oh I mean, yeah, yeah. Really, I mean. You talk about a short period in sports where so much happened. Yeah. It, it's really amazing. Yeah. And, yeah, the impact that on their lives. So I need to know. Um, the research in this book is absolutely astounding. I mean, we learn about the, 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 the Olympics, the history of the Olympics. We learn about this terrorist event. We learn about the history of basketball um, globally, too, not just here. Uh, there's deep dives into the players' backstories. There's, you know, a lot about the coaches. Uh, just it just It's intense how much um, um, is going on in, in a major way, and credit to you to make it flow so seamlessly. But how much, um, Thank you. How much research was involved? How long did it take to uh, bring this one to life? It's, 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 it's you well, know, it's, it's well, so yeah, like you- scope. Yeah, thank you. It, yeah, a ton of research. The good news is I love doing research. Oh, cool. uh, and I have since, I remember at age 15, I believe I was, mm-hmm. having to research a long paper on Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And I just remember loving going through all the books and, awesome. and writing notes on three by five cards. <laughs> and uh, ever since then, I've loved research. And with the internet, it's so much easier than, say, 30 years ago. Uh, you can do so much on the internet and with YouTube, seeing the videos of the games, uh, old newspaper articles, old magazine articles, and then the interviews are always crucial. It's great uh, talking with the players. I, I think I talked to eight out of the 11 uh, who are alive and one who has passed away. I talked to his daughter mm-hmm. um, and along with other people, as I mentioned, Jerry Colangelo and so on and so forth, George uh, Raveling and, and others who had, you know, some part of the story. Uh, so I, yeah, the research, I loved it. Um, and yeah, I, I, you mentioned the history of basketball. Yes, that comes into it. And the history of international basketball, you think about it back in 72, 
I mean, no NBA player was from outside of America, and now there are more than 100 from various countries. 42 different uh, the, countries. Is that right? Okay. Uh, and then the Greek freak, I mean, up in Milwaukee, he's incredible uh, from Greece. I mean, all these play, and then Toronto wins the NBA championship. I mean, no one thought of Toronto as a basketball city, you know, <laughs> yeah. then. so, you know, it's amazing how far we've come from that day in terms of international basketball. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess it could, you know, there's, you mentioned uh, certain Russians looking back uh, the, the owner of the Nets, uh, Prokolov, he, he was watching this. He was inspired by it. I mean, a lot of people were, you know, inspired by these games in the Olympics and it changed basketball forever. Um, I need to know, did, have you seen uh Going Vertical. Did you watch Going Vertical? That's the Russian movie they made about the games. You know, I haven't. As, <laughs> I, I you know, I mentioned it in that. the book. <laughs> yeah, I should, because that's a, it's a different perspective. Yeah. Uh, it's more the Soviets were heroic. Yes. And, um, I want to see it. It's it was the like, largest. It's going to feel like an alternate reality of the whole thing. I'm sure of it. <laughs> <laughs> it was the largest domestic grossing film in Russian history. It only came out, I think, in 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so this you know this game lives on even though people have different interpretations of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so what's fun too is to think about. We talked about a whole lot here, and I thank you for taking the time. But there's so much more in this book that we didn't even come close to talking about. We didn't even talk about Coach Ida. Um, uh, all just like the the preparation for the games. Just you know, so much that was still in there. It just it's remarkable what's in there, and I couldn't recommend this more. I mean. I love, um, oh, thank you. personally, as a basketball fan, I love um, how all the names you come upon in this book from um, Walton, uh, Bill Walton, again and again, which is so great. He's, he's just such a uh, phenomenal human being to me. Uh, Dean Smith, Bobby Knight, Bill Russell, uh, Danny Manning's in there, Sabonis, um, Tark the Shark. I mean, it's what a gift to, <laughs> to uh, basketball fans, to, uh, you know, history buffs. It's a, it's a great book for, and it's also got a wonderful human element um, as well, and you definitely made um, a Munich truther out of me. So, so, <laughs> so thank you very much for uh, coming on and uh, talking to us about the book. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate the time. It's always great talking with you. And yeah, I, I'm very proud of the book. And uh, it just came out in audio book as well oh, within the last few weeks. So that's another. Is that out? Uh, where would you get that? I, in the uh, that would be through Audible or through Amazon. Great. We'll be providing um, the links in the um, show notes and in the articles that associated. And, uh, and I already mentioned in the intro where to uh, grab it as well. So everyone out there, get a copy. Dave, thanks again. Thank you, Mike, and I uh, really appreciate it. Of course. And uh, thank you, everyone out there, for taking another trip with us across the margin.
This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.